Keeping it real with me today is the author of American Fix, Ryan Hampton. Thanks so much for being with me. Listen to your book and you're such an advocate, which I'm so thankful for, but we need to know your story first, which to me, you don't look like you were ever a heroin addict. <laughs> Does anybody ever look like they're a heroin addict though? Well, at the end of at it, the end, but in, right, the beginning, in the beginning, yeah, yeah. And that's why I think it's so important for you to tell us your story and how you got sure. to that point, because, you know, you had a normal childhood. I did. Uh, I grew up in a, a pretty good household. My mom was a public school teacher. My dad was a stockbroker. Um, you know, I think trauma. I think that 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 a lot of kids go through. Um, had a little bit of that in my family. Uh, but had this like up and coming career. I did well in high school, did really well, uh, you know, in college. I was really interested in politics, uh, policy, community organizing, uh, and went to Washington, D.C., which is where I, I went to school, Marymount University, and uh, landed a job at the White House working for President Bill Clinton um, in 1999. And uh, then you hurt your ankle. Right. <laughs> then I hurt my ankle. Right. Uh, after the Clinton administration in 2003, I was working for the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and I went hiking uh, with my roommate at the time, slipped, injured my ankle, injured my knee, um, and ended up being prescribed high-grade morphine, uh, hydro, hydromorphone is what it's called, which is also known as Dilaudid, which is like a really, really powerful opioid. Uh, it was supposed to get my knee taken care of and checked out in an MRI, but I never did that. Uh, but what I did get time after time was uh, another prescription and another prescription. And the real nexus of that, though, is I had moved back to Florida uh, shortly after that injury. And if you know anything about the opioid crisis and kind of where it came from and, and how we got to where we're at today. Before we had a you know full-blown opioid crisis, we had uh, a pill mill crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got caught up in that in South Florida uh, amongst you know unscrupulous doctors and pain clinics and pharmacies. And uh, it was quite a mess, you know? Do you think that looking back, you really even needed that medicine for your knee injury? Uh, you know, Probably, maybe on the onset I did, uh, I didn't need it time after time after mm -hmm. time, which is what happened. But, you know, it, it, it sounds kind of silly sometimes when I tell my story today, and especially when I was writing the book, because what we know now versus like what I knew then and what right. my family knew then and what we, I think, you know, collectively as a country knew, it's like night and day. Like, I didn't know that in, uh, in in 2005, when I was going to a pain clinic in Florida, that that doctor was being marketed, you know, heavily by Purdue, and there was all this mm -hmm. false research and data. And you know, did it, the doctor warn you, "Hey, this is addictive"? No. Uh, to the contrary, they told me it was not addictive. That's right. Right. It, it, that that there was a very low risk. Uh, for addiction. Um, and even when I started to develop, you know, full-blown uh, substance dependence, mm -hmm. um, I didn't really make the connection with addiction because I was getting the medication from a doctor and had a pill bottle with my name on right. it. Right. Plus, you were also still working in the political mm -hmm. arena. So a lot of people think, well, I'm, I'm successful in what I'm doing and I look good on paper. No one knows about this little secret that I have. Well, they didn't, you know, I, I don't think they knew that I had a full blown, you know, what we now call today substance use disorder addiction. Um, but they knew I was using the pills. I mean, I, I, I didn't really hide it too much. I think the, the symptoms of, of addiction and as that started to seep out in my life, 
that I hid. Uh, but the use, I mean, I can remember I, I had a pill bottle with my name on it and I would keep it on my desk sometimes or in my desk drawer. And I'd have colleagues that, you know, at the end of the day would be like, oh, what a day, you know, can I get one of those mm -hmm. pills? You know, I mean, it was, it, it was pretty common. I mean, and it wasn't, right. you know, it, it, it wasn't too much of a secret. Yeah, it's definitely more of a stigma, I think, to see people with pill bottles now versus oh, absolutely. 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, you did try to get help, though, before turning to heroin, correct? Yeah, so I had multiple attempts at, at treatment um, throughout the, the late 2000s, mid to late 2000s. Um, first time was before I started heroin. Yeah, first, first attempt at treatment was in 2006 in Florida. Okay, and then talk about how you... I'm sure you never thought you would ever be doing heroin. Never. And so uh, I think there's, you probably did a study in your book about it too, mm -hmm. or talk about it, one about how most heroin addicts got that way from starting with pills. Right. So, I mean, we know that, that in the United States, 80% of heroin users uh, started with a pres uh, prescription pain medication, whether that's from a doctor or from like a friend's you know, uh, stash or medicine cabinet or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But particular to my story, um, in about 2009, 2008, 2009, I had the state of Florida, which is where I was, decided that they were going to the, the pill, the the pain pill, the pain pill problem was becoming a larger kind of you know brought to the surface issue. Policymakers said, "Hey, we're going to fix this. We're going to have this thing called the PDMP, which is a physician drug monitoring database. Basically, this computer system that tracks." You know they're they're very they're they're wide in almost every state now, but a computer system that tracks uh, how many doctors you're seeing, if you're seeing multiple doctors, if you're getting multiple scripts. Um, but they didn't know enough then, as they do now, that mm -hmm. when they catch somebody in this database, they really shouldn't necessarily just be kicking them off and kicking them to the curb and and stigmatizing and shaming them and whatnot. Which was what happened with me. I walked into a doctor's office who had been giving me these prescriptions for quite a number of years at that point. Um, I was called, you know, they saw that I was doctor shopping at that point and seeking medication from other doctors and called me a junkie and a drug seeker. And if I showed back up at the office that they'd have me arrested for trespassing, you know, get out of this office, you're going to get us in trouble, you're going to get us shut down. Um, but as anybody who's experienced like full blown withdrawal from opioids knows, there gets to be a point where you, you don't really have a choice of like use or not use. It's mm -hmm. like use no matter what. It's a survival technique at that point. Yeah. And I can't relate on, on that front because, you know, my, my using was all like just, I would get out of control every single mm -hmm. time and then what more and more and more. I, I was never at the point where I physically needed mm -hmm. drugs to like keep going. Right. And that's how it turned to heroin because you mm -hmm. couldn't get the pills anymore. Couldn't get the pills anymore. And I wasn't the only one. I mean, this was happening to tens of thousands of people uh, all across even just the, the state that I was in, in Florida. Um, and people were starting to use heroin and that's how I started using heroin. And it was cheaper. It was more readily available when we needed it, when I needed it. Um, and, and that's how I developed a, a full-blown heroin addiction. And, and, you know, it's no surprise, I think, that life just spiraled out of control after that. Bouts right. of homelessness, you know, trying to find help, not being able to get help, you know, unemployable, no health insurance, mm -hmm. no money, you know, homeless shelters, everything that comes with that. See, I kind of was under the impression that there were state programs to send everybody for help, but 
do people like reach a limit? Like you only get so many or something or cause in your book, you, t- yeah, you talk yeah. about how so many people are turned away. And, yeah. and, and from my experience with rehab, like I am lucky that I had a job at the time. I had good health insurance and most of my inpatient stay was covered. So I, I feel very blessed because I, I think that my rehab really set me up for success in, in mm-hmm. sobriety. Yep. What we need is equitable access to like treatment and rehab, which means that anybody, no matter what your circumstances can get help. Uh, sometimes I can even look beyond, you know, we can look beyond like the traditional treatment model. There's a lot of ways that people can get help. Right. Um, but, you know, back to your point of, of public treatment, there is public treatment out there. Each state, you know, has some sort of variance on, on what that looks like. Mm-hmm. But a uh, small example here in, in Los Angeles County, last time I tried to get sober, which was in, in uh, 2014, um, tried to get a bed at a public treatment center. Um, there, there were no beds available. I mean, wow. I think at the time there were maybe four options of treatment facilities that I could go to that were medically qualified to deal with my level of addiction at that point and detox and aftercare and whatnot. Uh, and those lists were very, very long. And I there are a lot of people that die in the process of waiting to get help. Um, so we need more publicly funded treatment centers. We also need more publicly funded options. Uh, you know, I look at it now. I, you know, I had been to treatment half a dozen times. Um, it may have been better suited for me to be able to see a doctor and have something like a recovery coach and sober living and, you know, a longer continuum of care. Did I necessarily need treatment this last time looking back at it? Maybe so, maybe not. Detox, definitely, though. Well, we'll get to how you're trying to ch- change this whole system in a second. But what was the final um, thing that clicked for you that now, I mean, I know you have several years under your belt of, so- yep. of sobriety. So what worked this final time for you? So it, the moment that I decided to get help and people are like, what was the white light moment, Ryan? Like, what led you to, to, to get help and get better? There really wasn't a white light moment like that for me. And there was, I mean, my bottom was was pretty hard. I was already on the streets, you know, on right. Hollywood and Highland. Uh, it was more of a desire to, to have a bed, place to sleep and like a meal to eat the next day. Uh, and that opened the doors to, to this whole, you know, possibility of, mm-hmm. of recovery for me. Um, what was different though was I had qualified medical care. So like I was able to detox safely, uh, you know, medication assisted treatment in the form of uh, buprenorphine was a big part of my story for the first several months of my recovery. I stayed on buprenorphine, which really helped me, you know, focus and keep my seat uh, in treatment um, and look at the work ahead and not have the incessant cravings uh, for heroin and whatnot. But the real game changer for me was I was able to plug into a peer recovery network immediately. You know, I was able to plug into to meetings. I was able to plug into a safe, stable. Uh, housing environment where other you know, with other sober men, you mm-hmm. know, who were trying to do the same thing, and I stayed there for for over eighteen months, uh, something that I had never done before. Um, and you know, as you know, I mean that that group, that peer group, you know, lifted me up when I couldn't lift myself up, mm-hmm. and vice versa, um, and contributed to my you know positive outcomes today. So, what are you doing in Washington? Are you? I know you're trying to work it on all fronts from yep. dealing with like laws regarding the doctors, but um, rehab specifically, are you trying to get more funding for more of them? Sure. Um, So we're working, you know, not just in Washington, but in different state legislatures because a lot of this funding trickles down to the states and then the states have to provide it to the counties and the cities. But a lot of it starts in D.C. So 
uh, more funding and access to treatment is at the top of the list. Uh, nine out of 10 people in the United States will never see the doors of a treatment center okay. or get treatment for their addiction because it's just, it, it, the, the barriers are so high. So it's really lowering the barrier, entry barrier for people who wanna get help. Um, beyond treatment though, um, kind of what I, what I was alluding to earlier is we need that full scale support system uh, kind of what they call a, a recovery-oriented system of care. So, you know, through my lived experience, and I think through anybody who, who's in long-term recovery or sobriety today, they will know that it wasn't just treatment that contributed to, to, to their long-term sobriety today. That was an entry point for them. Mm -hmm. It was all the longer-term care. It was the recovery support, the peer recovery supports, the sober housing, the behavioral health care supports. You know, when someone has cancer or diabetes, we don't just treat them, you know, on the spot for 30 days and then be like, say, you know, see you later, good luck. You right. know, there, there's a continuum of care. Um, so does most insurance cut out after you do the outpatient and inpatient? A lot of insurance doesn't even cover a full, you know, 30 days, uh, let alone outpatient care afterwards. Mm -hmm. So there's a fight for, and that's called the the you know mental health parity, which which addictions now covered under, and needs to be uh, treated on par with other chronic health conditions like uh, heart disease and diabetes and and whatnot. Um, so there's that fight, and then there's the fight for more funding for recovery and recovery supports. Mm -hmm. Treatment does get a lot of money. Uh, in the budget as it as it currently is, okay. um, nowhere near enough. But if you look at that in comparison to what recovery supports get, recovery coaches, uh, recovery services in emergency rooms, recovery housing, uh, continued behavioral health care support, it's maybe at best two or three percent of what treatment and prevention get. Uh, and that's how when you look at the community and the people who are successful in the recovery outcomes, that's how they get there because they had that long term right. support. It would also help, too, if the stigma of yeah. addiction and recovery changed as well. It's but public enemy number so one. so many people yeah. out there that just think, oh, that person is making that choice. Sure. People look at it as a choice and also stigma. I mean, you know, the math is on our side. We know that. So 23 million Americans, just like you and I, who live in long-term recovery, uh, roughly another 22 million Americans who are currently struggling, who need help right now. Uh, so you're looking, that's about 45 million Americans. So in households, that's about one in three. Um, but a lot of those people don't want to talk about it. Those right. conversations aren't happening at the dinner table. Uh, so, you know, people look at us differently and look at those who are struggling differently. But more importantly, people aren't asking for help because they're ashamed of it, mm -hmm. right? So stigma, you know, everything I just talked about, like treatment, recovery supports, funding, policy, all of that, it starts at the top with stigma. If we can break the stigma and break the silence, more people will be willing to share their stories like you and I. More people will be able to identify that they're in recovery, which then inspires someone who may be needing help or looking for help or wants to you know, call that question at the dinner table uh, to do that. So once we can break the stigma and the silence, everything else flows from that. I do want to play like devil's advocate in, in a sense because I mean, there are people who, you know, like me and you, who finally got it. Mm -hmm. And we kind of made the choice, though, to stay sober and to work at it. Mm -hmm. So if someone is set up with a long-term recovery mm -hmm. plan and has all that in place, then they choose to go do that. I mean, it's kind of like if 
someone, you know, got a new liver, it's like, okay, you have a fresh liver, like, but you will die if you keep right. drinking or like right. you got, they got new lungs after smoking and, and, and they know like or diabetic who eats a piece I mean, of cake. Is it, a, isn't yeah. after they've had all that treatment, like, isn't some blame on the people though? That are choosing not, not to work work it? Well, I think as with any health condition, which addiction is, you know, there's there's relapse. We know right. that. Um, is there personal choice and accountability, if that's your question? A hundred percent. Like, do I have a choice to wake up today and to, to, to live a purposeful life, you know, or use heroin? Yes, that, that is a choice for me today. Um, but does that mean that we shouldn't have like all these other systems in place to catch people so they don't die? Right. You know, I mean, that that's the real question. Will we save a lot more lives mm-hmm. um, by having these systems, you know, set up, save the economy money, save our healthcare system, burden on criminal justice systems? Yeah, 100% we will. Um, there's always a matter of personal accountability, especially when it comes to addiction and, and alcoholism. I mean, we know that it's the nature of the beast that we deal with mm-hmm. you know it is you know the the brain science and the data and and the reporting is out on this this is a right. chronic yeah. you know brain illness um that people do connect more highly to personal choice though because of what's involved in it when somebody's in active use right yeah so we see this this huge breakup with folks where it's like yes we know it's a brain illness we know it's a disease we know it's a health condition you know but breast cancer and heart disease doesn't cause somebody to go out and like you know steal a car or rob a bank Right. Uh, you know, to feed the beast. Yeah, I think it just, uh, we need more compassion in it because there's so many people that just act from like a judgy place. Like it's easier to just be like, them or whatever and not right. like, oh, wow, like I feel for them. Right, but we also see what, what's, what's been fascinating though is that people who are judgy like that and see- Have problems themselves. <laughs> right, well, not only have problems themselves, but we've seen the shift in attitudes and behaviors and perception when they realize it's like their neighbor or their friend or their coworker, you know, that's either in recovery or currently struggling. Like I've Mm -hmm. seen that shift happen countless times these last couple of years or people who were just really had this, you know, uh, very different view of this issue and how to deal with it until it hit close to home. Um, and then that changed. And that's part of like breaking the silence, telling our stories and, right. and making it known who we are. Well, final question. I mean, how is it going? What has the reception been? You try to set up all these meetings and you do talk mm-hmm. to lawmakers. It's been good. I mean, it's been good. I wish we were moving a lot quicker and a lot faster with a little bit more urgency when it comes to policymakers. Um, but, but we are making strides. Uh, most inspiring to me, though, is I think the the louder we get, the more we talk about this, the more we tell our stories, the more books that are coming out, you know, the more positive uh, kind of screen and films that we see. Like there was a lot of films this year on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the more people are willing to talk about it. Like we 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 are a very big coalition. You know, sober sober peeps and and <laughs> and even those who are struggling and family members. We're big and we're seeing that unity come together. So I think. Uh, it's going to take time, but we will get there. I'm just grateful for the internet because we've been able to help so many more people because people can like be in the privacy of their own home yep. and learn information without even having to go to a meeting or mm-hmm. rehab because we all know like a lot of those people will never do either right. of them. Well, I wish you good luck with American Fix. Um, so much information because it wasn't all of your story, which I liked that uh, there's really a lot of research and, and you did a really good job with this. So everybody check it out. American 
American Picks. Ryan Hampton, thank you so much for keeping it real with me. And thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening to Keeping It Real, Conversations on Recovery, which is produced by KTLA and Evertalk TV. We would love for you to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And to see video versions of my interviews, head to ktla.com slash Find me on all of my social media at Courtney Friel. Have a great day.